is February 24th, 2023, also known as two days after HCM Awareness Day 2023. Um, I am not in my office, as you can tell. I am in South San Francisco and about to have another viewing of a man called Otto tonight with our California friends. So excuse the not typical sound and audio quality from my side. Today for Tales from the Heart, I'm joined again by good friend, Dr. Stephen Amon of the Mayo Clinic. We are going to be focusing on HCM awareness. It's heart month still. Look, still got the heart earrings on, got the heart shirt, got to do the whole heart month thing. Steve, you're wearing red. That's good. You got some red on. You're on to theme. It's kind of a big, bold topic, like awareness. The word is just like, we want to be aware. Why do people want to be aware of HCM beyond our little internal community? Why is it important? Yeah, it's it, it it's a good question. I mean, you know, the more people that are aware of something, the less mysterious and scary it can seem. You want to be aware because of issues that we've talked about in terms of maybe adolescent people having symptoms and get diagnosed with exercise induced asthma when in fact it's hcm underneath there that if if the medical community isn't thinking about hcm as a possible explanation for a seemingly healthy person's shortness of breath well then it's going to delay appropriate therapy for those individuals awareness of the consequences and the frequency of those consequences helps manage set expectations for patients and families. So there's all there's so many dimensions of awareness that's that's important from societal to medical community to within families, et cetera. But I would say one of the interesting things that you know we've noted over time is there's kind of two big gaps in awareness amongst people who have HCM in their family, let's just say. It might not be you that has it, but it could be something. So one is people get super scared and they and the information that they have found it tends to be biased towards the extreme cases. That's where they found their information versus patients who have a really mild form of HCM who don't who are doing so well they aren't even realize that there are potential consequences to it long-term. And so we have these knowledge gaps for, for both individuals. And so one of our big roles when a patient comes to see us in clinic is just kind of outlining the whole spectrum of activities, walking some people back from the edge when they're, when they're scared to death about their new diagnosis and making sure some people aren't blowing it off as inconsequential. We see both types of patients. You know, I'd often use the analogy, maybe it's because in my younger and smaller days, I was into gymnastics but I always looked at life with HCM like a balance beam. And at some points, my balance beam was four foot wide and I could stroll down and do cartwheels and everything else and everything was fine. But over time and at different intervals in my life, that balance beam got really small and you had to be really careful. And then mine turned into a razor's edge and you know the end <laughs> is there. So it's this balancing act of not being too cavalier and not being too scared and finding your balance and knowing what this means and what it doesn't mean. HCM does not have to define somebody. It Correct. doesn't. It's it's part of who you are. It's a little different life experience than some other people will have. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of chronic illnesses. Ours affects the heart and it can be a bit unpredictable. So it can get your attention that way. 
But with proper management and focus, we can do so much to improve life. And I think that's the key to awareness. If you know that it's there and you take proper care, then we can move on with life. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see the story or not, so I'll give you the recap. On HCM Awareness Day, we held a legislative briefing. Two weeks before HCM Awareness Day, I met a family. Mom is Amy. She told me of her her daughter, Jillian. This was a lack of communication that started in 2005 with cousin Danny's diagnosis. They didn't understand its implication to, to the other part of the family. They just knew Danny had a problem. Well, then Danny's dad, John, he needs a valve replacement and dies because he has his surgery in a smaller center. And he actually was found to have HCM at the time of the surgery and the complications. So now Danny and dad are HCM, but they were told because of lack of awareness of HCM. Get this. This is 2017. Oh, HCM is a male-to-male penetrant disorder. Really? Where did that one come from? Somebody literally made that up. So they were told nobody else needed to be evaluated. And in fact, when mom develops atrial fibrillation, she's told, oh, that's not HCM, that's AFib. You don't have to, they're not connected. So we miss these opportunities of communication and education And we finally got there in February of 2022, her daughter had a murmur and was immediately sent for follow-up with a full echo MRI, EKG, mom and daughter. But you know, that takes time to set up. So that was like three weeks. They did genetic testing and that took another three weeks to come Mm -hmm. back. And they got the answers on February 21st, 2022. They got the genetic findings. Yes, we have the same gene as Danny. We can now take action. It's a Friday, doctor will call you next week. We didn't get to next week because Jillian came home from school. Mom and her had a conversation that they had just learned about HCMA, recognized centers of excellence, and they were going to go to one. And they were setting up appointments. Jillian went upstairs to get ready for her work, watering plants. Oh my goodness. And then mom finds her car still in the driveway and goes upstairs to see what's keeping her. And she had had a cardiac arrest. She was down at 17. Wow. Had we gotten there a little bit sooner, Had we gotten there in 2015 or 16 or 17, 18, 19, 20, this girl had a four millimeter septum and a gradient of over 100 and a family history of her cousin's ICD appropriately firing. Everything was there, but our understanding of how to put the puzzle together and awareness brings the puzzle pieces together. And we want to move forward with the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act in every state so we have healthcare providers understanding why heart health history is important, not just for HCM, for all genetic heart diseases. Yeah. So although we are here at the HCMA, and obviously our focus is HCM and HCM spectrum disorders, we know that there are channelopathies and dilated cardiomyopathy and arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, all these other disease states that we can find if we start talking about raising awareness about family heart health history. I think there's a really kind of tangential aspect in there that we need to make sure that people understand. And that is within a family, HCM doesn't behave the same in each member of the family who has HCM. So we sometimes have patients that say, well, I'll wait to screen my kids until, you know, until their thirties, because that's when I started, you know, noticing symptoms. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Your kid may have a more significant form of it than you do. 
that might require us to do some screening activities and those kind of things sooner, or your kid have, may have a way more milder form or not have it at all. And all those things are meaningful to you and your family going forward, but it, it isn't familial in the way that it behaves. It can be much different, hypertrophy in different parts of the heart, more arrhythmias in one person versus another. So all kind of obstruction versus non-obstruction, even within the same family. So again, the, we, we used to really focus on what we call the heterogeneity of HCM, meaning it's different in each patient. It's even different in each patient within families. And I think that's a, an important thing that people need to understand. I could not agree more. And some families are just assuming because somebody else had a myectomy, I'll need a myectomy. Yep. Because somebody else had AFib, I'm going to have AFib. Um, my father and my sister both had really bad arrhythmia problems, atrial arrhythmia problems. My sister started in her early 30s. I never had AFib, even though you would have suspected my father, my aunt, my sister. But my left atria was well-behaved. It's the only part of my heart that was well-behaved. Yep. So we're not all like the other people in our family. We have these variations. Part of awareness, to me anyway, is ensuring that patients know and, and the community at large, meaning the healthcare community, knows how to get somebody to HCM care. I know we've had these discussions before, but some things are worth repeating. Why is high volume care important for complex HCM assessment? It, well, it's, it's important because people that see a lot of any condition become more familiar with all the patterns of that condition and recognize when patients are varying off of a healthy trajectory to a less healthy trajectory. It's hard when you only see something intermittently to do that. And that's not, it's not unique to medicine. I mean, if you're, if you're someone who tries to do home repairs and you, you only, you know, use a table saw once or twice a year, things don't come out as fit and finished and, and as good looking as someone who is woodworking as a hobby on a weekly basis. That same thing applies to medicine. We, we at the, at the bigger centers see so many patients with this, that that the pattern recognition and the familiarity with how to treat things and the speed from recognition to treatment is much shorter. So it, it, it just, it, it, you know, volume makes a difference in every aspect of medicine. It's not unique to HCM, but it certainly is true in HCM and, and probably a more poignant issue for so many people because it's not as common as coronary artery disease or atrial fibrillation is where every cardiologist sees those conditions on a daily basis. Not every cardiologist cares for patients with HCM on a regular basis, but that familiarity with what can go right and what can go wrong and the signs that are showing which way the patient is going, is it happens really quickly for those of us that, that see a lot of it, and it takes some time in those who have to kind of relearn on the fly when they have an intermittent interaction with, with HCMs. Kind of reminds me of a couple of people I've spoken to in the last few few weeks where one told me, well, my local cardiologist said it would be interesting if he could put me in the cath lab and see what was going on. And I'm looking at the echo and the MRI and I'm like, what is he interested in finding out? You have obstruction, the gradient's over 90. Your anatomy is very well described here in the MRI and in the, in the echo, but he's curious and would like to do some more tests. I'm like, what's he going to do with the results of that test? He's like, I don't know. Let me ask him. So he calls back and he asks him, what are you going to do with the test? He goes, oh, I just want, I'm curious. I just want to know. And I'm like, okay, 
should we be putting patients through invasive tests at a low volume center when somebody just wants to know, or should we be referring to people who can assess whether that cath is really necessary to get usable information to treat that patient? What's yeah, the curiosity? What, what, one of the classic teachings for, for providers is that you should only get a test if it's gonna change what you do. Or, or reinforce what you're doing. I mean, if, if you need mm -hmm. one more thing to confirm that we're on the right path, but but you you shouldn't you shouldn't get tests that aren't influencing either the decision or the confidence in the decision you're making. Agreed. So the other thing that's been coming up a lot lately, a bit because awareness is being raised because we have new therapeutics options, new clinical trials are being launched. We're talking about genetic therapies. Myosin inhibitors are gaining in popularity. And everybody's asking, well, what's in that toolbox for me now? But not everybody has access to a specialty center in their area. And during COVID, we saw a big uptick in telemed. You and I have been talking about telemed outreach for a long, long time. And we had the opportunity through COVID to be able to prove its value. What's happening now though with telemed? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. So the the official national public health emergency, which is it's not that we aren't still having COVID, but it is a kind of federal statement that we are in a public health emergency, which relaxed some of the state-by-state state licensure requirements and improved reimbursement for virtual care options of all kinds is expiring. And so there will be nationally some, some pullback. We've actually already seen in many centers, they aren't doing as much virtual medicine as they were obviously during 2020 and 2021, in part because it just, they didn't have the infrastructure in place for it and the workflows didn't really get habituated or solidified that it's comfortable for everyone to lean into that. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, the last half of 2023 and beyond, I can't practice medicine across state lines into states in which I don't have a license. So that means I wouldn't be able to do a virtual visit with someone in a state I don't have a license and prescribe for them a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker or Mavicampton or, or, or whatever, because I, I'm not actually licensed by that state to do that. We can have a sidebar about how silly that state-by-state -state licensure is because I'm far more qualified to practice medicine in Manhattan than I am drive a car in Manhattan. But my, my, my driver's license is recognized, but my Minnesota medical license is not. And so it's, it's, it's a little funny thing and there's all kinds of reasons behind it. A lot, a lot having to do with state's rights and state revenue, do those kind of things, but in any event, but we can do virtual visits for patients that are, have established care with us. So if I'm managing a patient with HCM and we've started a plan of care and we do a follow-up visit, something's not quite going right, we can jump on a, on a visit remotely and kind of redirect our uh, what we're doing without forcing the patient to come back 200, 500, 1,000 miles to Minnesota to see me in order to make that change. So it really is about ha having an established relationship with a patient. We can continue to do virtual visits. So a couple of things, you know, I, I do have a lot of state licenses, like 20 of them. So there's lots of states where I can see new patients even after the public health emergency. I think you may have 
most state licenses of any HCM expert I know. It's likely the case. And we're also going to, there, there's also a way that we could schedule a video visit kind of in anticipation of an, a face-to-face -face visit. And we use that, that video visit up front to refine what's going to happen with that individual when they do come to Rochester. Or in some cases, we'll identify patients that, you know what, you don't, you don't really need to come this this you know winter for for HCM here because you're on the right path with your team at home and let's not waste your time and time away from work or school and your healthcare dollars to come here when you're on the right path already. Here are the triggers we should look forward to then come. So we'll, we'll be able to do some things, but I won't be able to like initiate care for those patients where I'm not in a in a, a in a licensed state. I think that we will see this is kind of crystal ball stuff. If the healthcare organizations can can prove to CMS in particular that there is value in doing virtual visits and they're not just extra visits, right. then we're going to see reimbursement and licensure requirements be more permissive going forward than they were historically. But it is, it is important for healthcare organizations to prove that value. And, I, and we can talk about all kinds of measures of value. Obviously, a lot of people are worried about the dollar investment and the return on investment for that. Yeah, it's expensive to stand up an infrastructure to do HIPAA compliant, secured video visits, et cetera. But it's not just all about dollars and cents. As I mentioned, patients don't have to take as much time off of school or work or family. I mean, Travel expenses. Yeah, yeah. Even if you get care in your own city face-to-face, -face, that's a half a day off those things at, at a minimum for people in order to go for a visit. If you're coming to a, a, a destination medical center, then it's several days off work. And, if, and, and so we'll see value and it's, it's more logistically friendly to patients to, to, to bring care to where they are rather than the other way around. We have a study that we've published that showed that we save patients personal dollars out of their pocket that aren't covered by insurance, travel, lodging, et cetera, by doing post-operative follow-up visits by video rather than forcing patients to come back for pat on the back, essentially, uh, if things are going well. Patient satisfaction, just you know, how, how much confidence and satisfaction or, or caring do you feel from the organization are all positive data we've collected during and, and after the onset of the COVID pandemic. So there's lots of measures of value beyond just how much how much expense are we accruing to do this video visit today. It's there's there's a tail to all that. And, and again, if it's easier for patients to get access to care because we can do it on the fly quickly, well, maybe we keep people healthier for longer rather than patients saying, "Gosh, I don't know if I want to bother my doctor or make make all the effort to get that trip," and then they get a little bit sicker by the time they get there, which requires a more intensive treatment plan in order to get them back on their health plan. There's lots of things of value that that we in the medical community have to prove so that then the, the legislation and regulations can can change to be more permissive. But I have little doubt that it's the it's going to be an important part of care for the future, just like remote banking is an important part of being an adult, just like retail is now almost exclusively online. So every other aspect of our lives have gone that way. Medicine will, will continue to evolve in that direction as well. It will never be exclusively online, but it will be an important component of it for most patients. I think you bring up a couple of really good points and we did not discuss this one, but this is going to be a deep dive topic for later in the year. So I was around during the onboarding of HIPAA. 
but I was in another capacity. I was a health plan administrator then. And this Health Information Portability and Privacy Act sounds really amazing until you start seeing how it's actually managed. The number of complaints for HIPAA violations is in the history of HIPAA, which is goes back to the, I guess it's the late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there. There's been like millions of complaints, but less than 2% have had any action. Mm-hmm. And I'm involved with a case right now, personally, that I had a HIPAA breach. It was a reporter who recorded a conversation in a private meeting in a hospital, gave the tape to a reporter. Mm-hmm. Like if there's, if this is not a HIPAA violation at the highest level and the Department of Civil Rights is still investigating and multiple agencies are involved, it's been almost three and a half years and nothing has happened. So if you're not going to do something about something as egregious as a reporter basically getting personal tapes of somebody's health information and publishing them, I think we need to revisit all of HIPAA and see what is really useful here and what is a bunch of nonsense that wastes healthcare dollars. I, I know it sounds odd for me, a patient advocate, to say, is HIPAA so broken we should just recreate it? But I've had experiences. I don't think it, that's what you think it does. And people use it as a, well, we can't do that because of HIPAA. I'm like, okay, why? We can't fax you your medical record because of HIPAA. What? That's not HIPAA. Yeah, that's not So HIPAA. HIPAA broken. But I think our healthcare system is in crisis at a, at a certain level. And I think, I think it was actually an issue said we don't have a healthcare system. We have, I forget what the quote was he used many years ago, but we have a, a maze of, processes that kind of works and sticks together, but not so good. So I I just brought up somebody and and I think we should just take a moment and acknowledge what you told me this morning about a retirement. Yeah. Yeah. It's an end of an era. It is the end of the era. My now great friend, the greatest teacher I've ever had and my mentor, Rick Nishimura, retired from Mayo Clinic this year. And it's kind of unsettling for me because I just assumed he was part of Mayo Clinic, you know, for my whole existence. It was actually 35 years ago this year that I first met him. So, but he's, as as uh, someone said during his retirement party last night, he is going out at the top of his game and has touched so many lives from patients and families to students, learners, and, and peers. It's, it's, you can't even put it into words where he's at in that regard. But it's uh, it certainly is a it's sad for me to think that he's not going to be in the hallways with me where we're bouncing cases off each other and, and those kind of things. But I do get to see him on a weekly basis anyway uh, at happy hour. So that's good. I was going to say, I'm going I'm to guess it's a social event. Yeah. Now I can go back to the, the very early days of HCMA. He was one of the first uh, physicians that I had met that I really thought, okay, this guy, this guy really understands. It was, you know, Nishimura and Marin and, and McKenna, like those were the names that rolled off my tongue every day. And this was the the first generation that I worked with. And um, all of these guys are uh, heading to retirement now. And I'm looking around thinking, yeah. we were the young ones. <laughs> we were the young ones. What yeah. happened? It's changing. Well, well, yeah. When I when I realized that it was 35 years ago this year, I thought that's really hard because I'm only 35. Like, you know, 
but the fact is I'm not anymore. Uh, and so we, time does march on. But it's, I mean, but, you know, I mean, in all seriousness, that's why it's important that we continue to see our, the number of HCM focused experts well, be refreshed with young yes. talent, new talent, new centers, those kind of things, because it's the, the giants who are the only people that knew about HCM back when you started, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they've trained a lot of us and now, and now the field is, there's a, there's a lot more people that know about it and we need to continue pass, you know, paying it forward. So there's even more and more doctors who can take care of our patients with HCM. So, but it, it's uh Yeah. So I I just want to give a shout out that I think Rick Nishimura is one of the most brilliant people. He is a phenomenal teacher. I've sat in on many of his talks and the work he did in the early days of um, dual chamber pacing. He was so he was so analytical and honest and direct about the data, what we knew, what we thought, what was placebo, what was real, what was provable. He taught me a really important lesson in how to dissect treatments and really look beyond the headline of the article, which we were all bamboozled by in the early 90s. And he's like, no, 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 let's let's break it down. And some of the lessons that I learned through that time, I keep today, and they were some of the most important lessons I ever learned in being a patient advocate. It, It was like, okay, don't always, don't. Trust, but verify, and then verify again, and then the third time, go back and verify. But he was such a, a, was so professional about his complete and utter takedown of the, the article. Yeah. He, he was, he was um, diplomatic, yeah. yet somewhat vicious. <laughs> and it was appropriate. It was completely appropriate. No, he, he couldn't argue he with does him. He a unique ability to be critical in a way that is not threatening exactly to the other to the other party you know just just pointing out flaws or issues in those kind of ways but not as an attack he, he he's a professional gentleman and um i will miss the fact that he's not there i don't talk to him very often a couple times a year maybe just saw him at uh, last year's acc and sat next to him as a Put up the the Mavic Hampton results, and he had some interesting sidebars for me on the way out. So uh, it was it was uh, it's kind of sad to hear he's retiring. Yeah. But I'm also happy for him. I love when people can retire Absolutely. and go have some fun because he's worked really hard and he's helped thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives. There'll be lots of hiking and fly fishing in his in his future, so that's good. I think that's a great way to spend a retirement. Mm-hmm. I aspire to such things at some point. Oops, I forgot to take my pills. Okay, it's 8.30. Let's go back to the topic of the day, and that's the HCM awareness. And we talked a little bit about telemed, but I'm going to kind of pivot this into some of more of the advocacy efforts. So advocacy has a lot of definitions. Patients becoming good advocates for themselves, centers advocating for resources for their patients, and then legislative and policy advocacy. So advocacy kind of fits in in a lot of different spaces. If we're going to get telemed covered and have people get access to care, this is unfortunately a regulatory issue mm-hmm. that we're all going to have to band together as a community and explain why we need it, how we need it, what we need. And this might mean a couple of trips to Washington or to state houses to have these conversations 
but they're critically important conversations to have, especially for a community that has a, a not common, although common from an epidemiological point of view, but we're not in everybody's office. They don't see us as HCM patients in every doctor's office in the country. We need access and we need to make sure that people don't have to go bankrupt to get health care. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not we're going to be get any traction here, be successful, uh, or are we fighting a battle that can't be won? Yeah, no, th- 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 there is traction. So there is a there is a house bill that 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 uh, it has a very positive take on the reimbursement aspects for telemedicine. And again, that's that's not what should be driving our discussions about it. But but the reality is, if if a hospital system is you know, losing money, it's not going to stay open. And so getting reimbursed for the activities they do is important so that they can continue to provide care. But but that House bill, and I've, I've blanked on the what House bill number it is, was very positive towards continuing reimbursement activities for virtual care into the future. It wasn't sure how that bill was going to be perceived in the Senate side of things. We, we don't have a final word on that, but there certainly are plenty of people in Washington who recognize there is value to this, probably because most of them experienced getting care this way over the past three years at some point. So there will be traction, but it's but what I've heard at some, some telemedicine uh, kind of think tank meetings I've been to is from from a from a, a lobbying group in DC is that the more vocal people right now are the people that are worried about cost containment and the people that have figured out methodologies to use it and trying to show the value aren't being as vocal and whoever's most vocal will win the day. So for for like you said, for mm-hmm. HCMA and the HCM community in general, if our patients are finding a lot of value in the op in the even the option to get care this way, we need to make sure that that voice is being heard. This is always the challenge. There's so many pieces of legislation that are moving state houses, federal houses. And I want to be very, very, very clear on something. And and I say this over and over again on the local level and on the national level. This isn't politics. It's governance and it's policy. And it shouldn't be left, right, center, what your political affiliation is. We can all look at past the party lines and look at, okay, what are we trying to do here? Here, we're trying to make sure people get access to health care. They get the providers that they need. They get the input that they need. And we want to make sure that all stakeholders are heard from. The stakeholders that get to decide the policies are the ones that have the money to throw behind things, such as, you know, large payer systems, et cetera. So it's really important that the little guys like us get in there when we have to and, and have meaningful conversations. So we will probably be organizing a couple of Hill visits in the next year or so on a number of different issues. And many of them are things that we can all agree are good ideas. A new bill is being presented that will homogenize AED Good Samaritan coverage in the United States. So we don't have a patchwork of in this state, I can use it in that state, I can't and have Good Samaritan coverage. We want that everywhere. Who doesn't? I think DeMar did a great job of explaining everybody what an AED is and he was saved in front of everybody and people are like, I need to go get an AED now. And well, what are the laws about that in your state? Can you just use it? Do you have to get training? Who's responsible? Blah, 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 blah. All those details. So if we have a federal bill that covers the whole country, that's great. 
So issues like this, we're trying to track. I have limited bandwidth because we're a small organization, but our legislative team is working on it. We have a whole committee that works on these issues. Now, we all just need to get involved with that. And my next step for my committee internally is to start branching out to all the centers and going, okay, here's what we're watching. What are you watching? And then Mm -hmm. having our whole network start to come together on those three or four key issues that we all say, this really matters and have our voices amplified. Every time I think, okay, we've finished this problem. We're good. I can relax. There's less work to do. But the other way, we find more work to do. Yeah. But they're important things to get done. So that the it's interesting that the, you know, the cost containment people are kind of winning the day over those who need access because that's just the way our system works, isn't it? Crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay. So as we wrap up part month, we have a, a couple of days left. Tonight we're doing the filming of or the, the viewing of a man called Otto. We've got, I think, 80 people coming to the movies with us. HCMA is and our yeah. sponsors, thank you to Tonight Therapeutics, Bristol Myers Squibb, and Cytokinetics, who are sponsoring this little movie tour I'm doing. If this one works, I'm probably going to go do one in D.C. in March. And then I thought we might, okay, this is only a might, people. Lisa sometimes says things out loud before she should. But I think over the next couple of years, as we get back out on the road, we may have like private events at different centers around the country and do a viewing when it's streaming on Netflix, et cetera. We can get a, a theater in, you know, one of the Mayo conference rooms or whatever, one of their theaters and come together there and watch the movie and have a meeting and, and make it a little interactive and fun and, and kind of add that element in. So maybe someday Tom Hanks will come and talk with us. Every podcast since the beginning of January, I've mentioned Tom Hanks because he's an honorary member of the community now as Otto, but he hasn't called me yet. Tom, my number's on the website. Just call me. We'll see. All right. What else would you like people to know about heart month? Why it's important to take a whole month to talk about our hearts and specifically a day to talk about just HCM? Well, I think, I think we, we kind of touched on it at the beginning. It's, it's, it's again, just for general awareness. And again, awareness is such a broad term. It's awareness that the diagnosis exists. Yeah. That's, that's important. Maybe more for the healthcare community so we don't overlook cases uh, too soon. Awareness amongst our patients who have it of all the likely outcomes, the possible outcomes, and and the likely therapies and the possible therapies. And the reason why I say those things specifically that way is there is a human nature thing, and I've forgotten the technical term for this, but it's that we tend to focus on the worst-case scenario and grossly overestimate how likely that worst case scenario is to happen. And then we put way too much effort into trying to figure out plans against that. So that's why Mm -hmm. establishing expectations of what's likely versus what's possible uh, is an important part of the, of awareness about disease, natural history and, and lifestyle, how to live your life, all those kinds of things is important. I think that's an excellent point. Setting expectations. I've been focusing a great deal in our newly diagnosed meetings and our therapy planning sessions have realistic expectations. Just because you have surgery doesn't mean every symptom is going to go away. Just because you have an ICD, you're not going to feel better because you have an ICD put in, but people somehow sometimes think, oh, I'm getting an ICD. It's going to be all better now. 
um, or I started a medication, so it's all going to be okay. If we understand what symptoms we're going to be trying to minimize and what we would like to be able to accomplish and do that we can't do today, I think these are setting realistic expectations. And when you don't, you often end up a little disappointed if your expectations were unrealistic and something doesn't go right. So we want to manage expectations. Yeah. So we have a question coming in. My grandson has a gene for HCM. My brother passed of this. My sister passed of this. Does this mean he will definitely have HCM? The answer to that is, is, is there are never absolutes. So there's never 100% or 0% in medicine and in particular HCM. But we, we do not know that everyone who has an HCM associated gene variant will develop clinical HCM. It's why we why his follow-up plan will include regular echocardiography and EKGs and imaging to see if and when he does that appropriate actions are taking at those times, but it's not a, a foregone conclusion that it will definitely happen. I think it was about a year and a half ago, I had Perry Elliott on talking about an article he wrote about penetrance. Yep. Um, and I believe the data at that point was there was like an 80% expectation that in a family like this, the gene will at some point present but at what age and what would be that trigger? We're still not smart enough to know all the triggers right. for why. I think we're getting smarter though. I think in our lifetime, before we can go off and retire, maybe we'll understand where the off on switch is for all this stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot more appreciation for the fact that a single gene explaining someone's HCM is not the most common expression of HCM we're seeing. It's probably a recipe of genes that... It's not even that they're pathologic, but together they promote hypertrophy in the heart. And this is where a lot of intense research are going on by our very smart colleagues who, who find that genetics work, you know, their passion. We're, we're looking for that. There's a couple of important things in there that, that in addition to this. So one issue in terms of awareness, I've had patients come in and say, well, we did gene testing. And it came back negative. So now my kids don't have to be screened because it's not genetic. Mm. Not the answer. It means your method of screening is different. We have to use imaging, echo or MRI, for your family members because we can't count on a single gene methodology to screen for your family. So it doesn't mean it can't still be passed on. So I, I was just at, you, you and I were at this meeting up in uh, Boston um, on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and HCM. It was kind of a drug discovery meeting with a bunch of pharma folks and you and I. I was really <laughs> taken aback by how all these different companies gave up their explanations of what FPAF was. And some of them included HCM in their definition of HEPPAF. And some of them said it's diabetes and obesity and hypertension combination. And some said it was genetic. So I think we're a little in the wild west of why does the heart get stiff in some people that we don't understand? Yeah. So you want to just talk a little bit about where you think we might be going? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a, it is a confusing topic. So HFPEF is, so heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, HFPEF, is an umbrella term. For people who have symptoms 
of heart failure who don't have a weak heart muscle, which is, you know, historically heart failure with people whose ejection fraction was low. And so then this umbrella term HEFPEF is there. And so if you consider HEFPEF as just an umbrella term, certainly HCM fits under that umbrella. There are people who have heart failure and they have normal ejection fraction with HCM. And so therefore they meet that terminology. The challenge is that because HCM is unique compared to other things that can cause HEFPEF, like someone who has as you said, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, they can have HEFPEF too, but they don't have the arrhythmia burden of, of the population of patients with HCM or the sudden death risk of a population of patients with HCM. When you're designing new drug trials, you are not gonna include patients who have potential outcomes that are unlikely to be impacted by the drug because you want as pure a set of people to test that drug on as your initial mm -hmm. data set, so you don't get confused by events that are occurring that were part of HCM, but not part of the other 95% of HEFPEF. And so, so that's the challenge is that HCM will be excluded in many trials for, for that rationale. I think more and more companies are including HCM. I think if we're, if we're again, using our crystal ball, I think that many of the companies that are working on the cardiac myosin inhibitors, aka the Mavicamptin class of medications, are hoping that Mavicamptin is actually, uh, those drugs are going to be exportable to other causes of HEFPEF because the relaxing of actin and myosin is in part what helps the heart be less stiff. I, I think HCM is, is, is going to be included in some studies, not in other studies. Obviously, we learned at that meeting, and you've learned where you're at now, that there are companies who are targeting more HCM-specific things that aren't just actin and myosin interactions, but down to specific genetic groups. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of work being done, but HEFPEP is a, conf it's a confusing area for those who are in it, because there are so many underlying diagnoses that bring their own treatment needs under the umbrella. It's, it's a great time to be in this space. There's a lot of discovery, but at the same time, and, and I'm going to quote Nish, there's a lot of unbridled enthusiasm out there right now. And I think we all just need to go slowly and cautiously forward and look at the details and really understand the science. I got in a little Facebook thing this weekend with somebody who put up a supplement, like, oh, this supplement helped me. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's nice. And then I said, there's no data that I have found in any of my searches because anybody says something, I go and I go PubMed and I'm searching and I'm looking and doing my research and I see nothing saying that it helps or it hurts. There's just no data on this, but one person's antidotal experience. So we want to make sure that when we're sharing information and raising awareness, that we're saying scientifically accurate and not confusing people with hypothesis that's not been proven without saying this is a hypothesis. It hasn't been proven. We need a study. Yeah. And I think over the next three to five, we're going to be focusing a lot more on clinical trials in HCM and HFPATH, and we're going to learn an awful lot. And raising awareness lets us identify those patients who might benefit from the, the current discoveries that we have and the future discoveries that I think we're going to be having soon. 
We have an update from this question from earlier, um, which might change your answer a little bit about what the gene means in his child. In this particular family, over 20 people in the family have died before the age of 30. So a child in a family with significant disease under 30 probably should get to a center of excellence that understands pediatric and adult HCM for very specific monitoring and, and action. It, it doesn't change the original question. There is a chance yeah. that that child will never show HCM or have those consequences, but certainly, uh, I mean, that was part of what we wrote in the guidelines that in families who have a unusual, particularly aggressive or particularly early onset in other family members, those are the people that we want to screen and follow more closely. Well, we are wrapping up on our time here. If anybody has any other questions, we can take them. I'm laughing here to myself because I have used my backpack as my laptop holder. And I just realized I did not take my transplant medication this morning because I'm in California and my Jersey alarm didn't go off and I'm so confused. So we'll be doing that in just a minute. I just reminded myself out loud. But I wanted to just highlight a couple of things that happened on HCM Awareness Day to bring people back to our YouTube channel where they can go view it. And uh, Steve, I, I really do hope that you show your, your whole team um, what we did on Wednesday night. We kind of debuted the start of a new part of our website. There will be more added to this part of the website. But Dr. Bill Roberts has sectioned a number of HCM hearts for us. And we actually did a video of him sectioning two transplanted individuals' hearts. They were on Zoom. I was with Dr. Roberts down in Texas, and we filmed him sectioning these HCM hearts into two very, very different hearts. And I think there's something pretty amazing about somebody sitting on a Zoom room watching a man cut their heart open and teaching and, yeah. and explaining that there are very different presentations of HCM one girl was transplanted before 30, the other woman, I think she's in her early 60s. Um, and you look at these two hearts and it's pretty amazing. And we will be going out to University of Toledo in April when the plastinization process is completed and picking up the hearts and adding that into the new collection to educate people about HCM. And again, just another unique way to bring awareness. We all know we, I plastinized my heart, but now we're going to have a collection of about nine when we get done, maybe wow. 10 that we hope to use for education and awareness. Uh, another question. It's the grandma day today. Lots of grandparent questions. Grandson diagnosed at 14, now 16 gene positive. Can you have eating issues with HCM? He has a resting gradient of 33. I think she means MMHG. I don't think it's hypertrophy. And he can eat very little and he's lost weight recently. What does the inability to eat mean for somebody with heart disease and heart failure symptoms? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's also the possibility that there's something unrelated to the HCM that is causing inability to eat. So that's that individual should be evaluated generally for GI issues or, or other things that can cause lack of appetite or loss of eating or loss of weight, et cetera. But within HCM, particularly patients who have obstruction, but not exclusively patients who have obstruction, many patients do complain of more symptoms when they eat 
large meals. I've heard patients complain about certain types of simple or carbohydrates are more likely to cause this reaction, but they get more symptoms when they eat. And so they just aren't eating very much because it makes them feel lousy. And it probably has to do with some of the autonomic nervous system. So that part of our nervous system that we can't control mentally, that causes certain blood vessels to dilate and other reflex actions to occur that temporarily makes the obstruction more worse after meals. When you're when your body's sending blood to the gut to help digest that food, not as much as coming back to the heart to fill it. So you, you obstruct easier. So that can certainly we have many patients who complain of of inability to eat because of their obstructive HCM. So that can be an explanation for it, but there are other reasons why teenagers can't eat as well. So I would ensure that you bring them back to a specialist center. Let's look at the heart. Let's look at other issues. There's a lot of different things that be could be going on here. Um, I have another family member who has Crohn's disease and they just dropped a ton of weight really fast and they couldn't figure out why. And he's got that under control now and he brought all the weight back. So you want to look at things beyond your heart. Just because you have HCM, that doesn't mean that's why everything is doing what it's doing. The arthritis in my hand was not caused by my transplant. There are other genetics at play here. Sometimes we just have things that happen to us as humans. Humans are pretty weird when you get right down to it. There's a lot of processes going on in here simultaneously. We we need to take care of the whole person. So Susan, I hope you're welcome. I'm glad that that was helpful. Okay, so we have come to the end of another hour of Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. Some programming notes coming up. Obviously, I said I'm here in California State. We have the auto thing we're doing. There's still a couple of tickets available if you are in the area. I think we have like five seats open, which is nice. We're like in a sellout crowd. So I like that. So we have that coming up. We have a big hearted at the end of October. I'm sorry, March. Where did I get to October already? We will be at the American College of Cardiology Conference in New Orleans coming up next weekend. So I get to go home, rest, get back on an airplane and go to New Orleans. I'm hoping I don't break my leg this time in New Orleans. That was not fun. Um, we're going to avoid that like the plague. And then we have a couple of other big hearteds coming up this fall or this, this spring, October 21st. You're going to start hearing that date a lot. That is going to be our first in-person meeting in New Jersey. We are building our curriculum right now and our faculty will be getting invited over the next couple of weeks. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Steve, don't make any plans for that weekend. And uh, we're going to be doing a couple of other uh, public events as the year goes on. So stay in touch with us. We'll be here just about weekly for Tales from the Heart with different stories. And um, we also announced a new program that you can go to the website now and sign up for. This is an application process because we can't have everybody into this on step one. And this is our Share Your Story workshop where we're going to be working with some people who are influencers, who have social media platforms of all different types to get out there and share their story, not just through Heart Month and not just on HCM Awareness Day, but throughout the year. Your own stories can provide inspiration and support to people who are just kind of watching your journey. We want people who are comfortable sharing their story. You don't have to commit to doing it to join the workshop, but you will fill out an application We want to understand where you're coming from. It's not emotionally easy to share your journey for everybody, but to some, it's incredibly healing and helpful to put something out there and let people see what's actually happening in hopes that you're actually helping their journey along the way. 
So if you're interested in participating in the workshop, we'll be meeting for the first time in March or early April. We're working on the date right now. And we're going to meet like three or four times as a workshop. And we're going to create a playbook that we're going to present in October to the patients and the participants of that meeting. So if you want to participate in the workshop, please go fill out the application. We're gonna, we've got a group of about 10 people who have social media experience. Some are bloggers, some are writers, some are vloggers, some are Instagram folks or TikTokers or Reels people. And we're all gonna use all these different methods to talk realistically and honestly about what it's like to live with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, whether you go to transplant, whether you've got an ICD, whether it's a family history, please join us. We do have one last question, Steve. Oh, Steve, help me here. <laughs> and to Scott, who's asking this, my comment and my expression isn't about you. Apical HCM. I don't know why for the longest time it had this reputation that it was the benign thing. And now everybody's switching and it's like the worst thing. Apical HCM. Better, worse, same, different. Please talk about apical yeah, it's, it's, for a minute. It, it's, it, I wouldn't consider it benign or less benign than anyone else with HCM. It just talks about where in your heart the hypertrophy is. Most people with apical HCM do not have outflow tract obstruction. And so typically patients have symptoms with apical HCM due to the stiffness of the heart or the fact that a thick heart muscle often lives closer to oxygen debt than a normal thickness heart muscle, so that the approaches are different. But, but apical HCM should not be viewed as, as different. Yes, apical HCM is more likely to develop something called an apical aneurysm. I wish we had a different term for that because this is not like an aneurysm in a blood vessel that's likely to rupture. An aneurysm of the heart is almost, it's actually tougher than the rest of the heart, so unlikely to rupture. But it is one of the things that we know impacts our risk assessment for cardiac arrest. That's more likely to happen in apical HCM, but it doesn't happen in most people with apical HCM. Our approach is we evaluate and risk stratify all of our patients the same, regardless of where their hypertrophy is located. I have a philosophy on why we're hearing more about apical HCM. You can tell me if my philosophy might be on target or if I'm completely wrong. Imaging technology has improved exponentially over the past 20 years. We didn't used to get good views of the apex with you know 80s and 90s style echoes. We see the apex better now. Is HCM with an apical presentation as common as other presentations? No, it's, it's less common, actually. Um, okay. Really apical HCM. I mean, there, so there's the, the hypertrophy of the septum, asymmetric hypertrophy of the septum is the most common presentation. And that may or may not be associated with obstruction. That hypertrophy moving down to the apex is probably next. Hypertrophy isolated to the lateral wall or anterior wall of the heart are less common than apical is. I, I don't really like to talk about it as a different, it's not a different condition. It has different hemodynamics and blood flow issues. And we have to deal with that as clinicians and patients and trying to find the right therapies to help you feel better if you're having symptoms. I often get people telling me, I have the rare form of HCM. Is it rare or less common than other anatomical presentations? It's, it, it's less common than, than septal hypertrophy. Okay. So Scott, I hope that answers your question. We had a lovely man on a, the newly diagnosed group the other day who's a uh, physician in Florida who just got diagnosed with HCM. Lovely guy. And he's like, I have the rarest form. I'm like, it's not rare. It's just not as I mean, common. I mean, I mean, part of the issue is historic. I mean, HCM was first detected because people had 
murmurs and symptoms that actually initially they thought was aortic valve stenosis and it wasn't. Apical HCM rarely causes murmurs because it's not causing outflow tract obstruction. So it wasn't part of the original patients who were being assessed by Dr. Braunwald and, and Marin and colleagues at the NIH in the 50s and 60s. But as you said, as we learned more and more about HCM and as we got to echocardiography and now CMR, we're seeing that this is not rare. Yes, there is a slightly less frequency of apical compared to septal HCM. We're just picking up because we have imaging studies now. Thank you. Thanks for that question, Scott, because that clip, Steve, is going to go on the website. We're just going <laughs> to cut this off of Tales from the Heart, and it's going to go on the apical page because that was beautifully said. Thank you so much. To everybody joining us today, we wish you a happy heart month as we come to a close. If you're interested in the Share Your Story workshop or just sharing your story in the future as an individual one-off piece, please email us. Julie Russo is our volunteer coordinator and she can coordinate your story for you. You can sign up through the website or you can just email julie at 4hcm.org and she'll help you with that. Oh, forgot, massive news today. Arizona and Nevada. Yay, HCM Awareness Day resolutions. I think we're up to like 20 right now. So check the website for the full list. And if your state has not recognized HCM Awareness Day as the fourth Wednesday in February every year, you have a whole year to get them to do it for next year. Because I assure you there will be a February next year and we'll be doing this again. So Steve, thanks for spending some time with us today. Give my best to, to Nish and wish him well on his retirement. I'll send him an email later. My best to all the team at Mayo. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for joining us on Tales from the Heart. And thank you to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Tenaya Therapeutics, Imbria Pharmaceutical, and Biomarin. Mm-hmm.